July 20th, 2012, in Aurora, Colorado, James Holmes entered a midnight premiere of The Dark Knight Rises with a tactical shotgun, a high-capacity assault rifle, and a sidearm. He then threw a canister of tear gas into the crowd and began shooting. Soon, 12 innocent people were dead and 58 more were wounded, a young child and pregnant woman among them. Unlike most mass shooters who commit suicide or provoke a deadly shootout with responding police officers, Holmes was found calmly waiting at his car and was arrested without any resistance, something that few others would do. In the court case that followed, only Dr. William Reed, a distinguished forensic psychiatrist, would be allowed to record interviews with the defendant. Reed would read Holmes' diary, investigate his phone calls and text messages, interview his family and acquaintances, speak to his victims, and review tens of thousands of pages of evidence and court testimony in an attempt to understand how a happy, seemingly normal child could become a killer. Welcome to today's show. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and as always, your host. I'm really excited about today's show because it's a special case analysis of a mass shooter. On this episode of The Forensic Psychologist, we not only have a chance to get an inside look at the mind of a mass murderer, we get to see what it's like to be a forensic psychiatrist in action. I'd like to introduce <clears throat> I'd like to introduce you to Dr. William or Bill Reed, a forensic psychiatrist and past president of the American Academy of Psychology and the Law and winner of too many awards to mention. He's also the author of A Dark Night in Aurora, a fantastic true crime book he wrote about this case. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you so much for having me, Joni. I've been looking forward to this all week. I am also very excited about you being on the show. This is such a tragic, and yet from a forensic mental health professional's standpoint, certainly an interesting case that I want to talk with you about today. So first of all, tell us how you got involved in the James Holmes case. Sure. And I'm so glad you said tragic in the same breath as interesting, because it is both. It is both. As you and lots of folks know, James Holmes killed and wounded a great many people back in 2012. In the course of the investigation and, and uh, prosecution, the judge decided that he wanted his own forensic expert in addition uh, to the forensic experts that were hired by the two sides, the prosecution and the defense. He initially <clears throat> went to a very good forensic psychiatrist in uh, Denver named uh, Jeff Metzner. Jeff did a super job, but as always happens, both sides had something to criticize because he didn't support them down the line. And so both sides petitioned the judge to bring in a second expert. Uh, they did a search. My name came up, interviewed, and things like that. And, and I was asked and went ahead and did it. And so what all did that involve? Boy, it involved so much. The first thing that happened was that both sides sent me records to review, as, as you very well, because you've done this many times. One side sent them FedEx. The other side rented a van and trucked them over to me uh, in person because the records were somewhat confidential, in part because of all the media coverage. There was certainly an order from the judge about what the judge wanted me to address, because after all, I was the judge's, the judge's expert and, and not either sides. So I started reviewing what at the time was about 75,000 pages, uh, increased to about 90,000 over the next year or so, looking at many photographs, 
videos, audio recordings of interviews, things like that. In due course, after several months, it was time to interview the defendant, James Holmes. We arranged to do two sets of interviews, one in a place of my choosing, a forensic hospital, secure hospital in Pueblo, Colorado, and the second set of interviews in the jail in which he was incarcerated in Centennial or Aurora, Colorado, which is really essentially part of Denver. I actually first met Mr. Holmes on a visit to the various sites and introduced myself and simply shook his hand, things like that. But the first time we sat down to talk was sometime well after, I think about a year after the events. And I think that's so important because it's such a challenge. I know sometimes we're going in to evaluate a criminal defendant in particular for a evaluating their mental state, particularly at the time of the crime. That is, I think, a challenge that we all have is trying to put ourselves back into that person's state of mind at the time. And it was it's often a year or, or more between when the crime occurred or the alleged crime occurred and when we're seeing them. You're absolutely right. And obviously, you've done this before. In, in the best of circumstances, one wants to see the defendant as close to the event as feasible. Now, you've got to wait in general, uh, unless you're the defense's expert, you have to wait until he has counsel and things like that. But seeing him months or even a year or so after the event makes it difficult to reconstruct what he was like at the time of the event. And as you said, we're really only interested in what his mental condition was just before and during uh, the shootings themselves. So when the judge contacted you, what did he tell you? So he said, okay, I want you, Bill, to go out and evaluate Mr. Holmes and answer this question for me. The judges or the judge's office, the court contacted me and they assigned, they were kind to assign a nonpartisan attorney who works for the state, but not for the prosecution <clears throat> to help me as she had helped Dr. Metzner to navigate the legal issues and to be the kind of buffer between me and the judge himself, the two sides, uh, and the media. The issues for me were whether or not he met the Colorado requirements for being not guilty by reason of insanity. And in addition, to answer some 12 or 14 questions that one or the other side had brought up to the judge or that the judge simply wanted answered himself within an eventual report and, and perhaps eventual testimony. Dr. Metzner was asked also to evaluate whether Holmes was competent to stand trial, which is, has to do with his mental condition at the time of trial, not at the time of the events. I was not asked to do that. So you're basically saying, does he have, in your opinion, the basis for an insanity plea under Colorado law. Correct. And of course, the mental health professional doesn't decide that, but rather offers opinions to inform the court about whether or not he uh, may have met those. And the jury or the judge, depending on the jurisdiction, makes that decision. And what kind of information do you think helped you in terms of looking at his state of mind around the time that the crimes were committed? There was a lot of secondhand information 
that is uh, not third hand, that is people who actually saw him, were with him a lot, gave interviews, and I interviewed them as well. There was video of him around the theater. There was video of, of him in various other contexts. Some of it was surveillance video from grocery stores and things like that. And lots of sources of how he was behaving, talking, appearing during not only the event itself, but the days and weeks and even months before. It was useful to have a lot of information about uh, his childhood and his past uh, and things like that. The more relevant things for the court's purpose had to do with his condition within the days and weeks of the event itself. Defense was very interested in information about the more distant past because they had the difficult job of trying to construct an insanity defense. The prosecution was much more interested in the jury seeing him shooting people. Yeah, and I think that's one of the challenges that you and I face sometimes going into these cases. It really is, I don't know if luxury is the best word, but there's something that's so freeing, I think, for us as forensic evaluators when we are able to be the court's expert. I think oh, yes. that does buffer us a lot from that, those kind of competing sides, which are understandable in terms of the court system, but I think make our job so much more difficult. It really is a luxury. We hope that the attorneys are ethical with us and we try to be very ethical and objective ourselves, but having standing with the judge to have access to literally anything that either side has, including law enforcement materials, is a tremendous luxury. Sides try to handle you a little bit, to pressure you a little bit, I'm sure. But you're right. Luxury is a good word to use. And so what were your impressions of James Holmes? Let's first talk about when you actually met him and sat down with him for that first interview. The first time I met him was when I took a, a tour of the jail. I was looking at all the sites, the, the site of the shootings, his apartment, things like that, although his apartment had been cleaned up and re-rented. At that time, he was cordial. Uh, shook my hand, didn't talk much. Uh, but when I sat down with him, uh, again, in the forensic hospital, the security hospital in Pueblo, uh, he simply sat in a chair, smiled a bit, uh, was cordial, and appeared to be very genuine. He didn't appear to be trying to change things, trying to malinger. He didn't talk much. Uh, he in your and my parlance, uh, appeared to be blocking a bit. His affect, the way that he spoke and appeared in his face, was blunted. But other than that, he answered questions reasonably well and did not at all look like some crazed killer or some crafty criminal. Did he have a criminal history before these events? No, he had no criminal history at all. Might have had a traffic ticket, but no criminal history at all. He had a bit of a mental health history, but very darn little. He had visited as a small child with a counselor two or three times because his parents were concerned about his socializing at school. He wasn't making uh, as many friends as they thought he should once they had moved from the, the uh, Southern California to the Salinas area in California. Uh, a little later, he saw a counselor briefly with the family, but those were minuscule kinds of things. 
until a few months before the shootings when he sought out at the advice of a girlfriend, a psychiatrist, first a social worker, then a psychiatrist, to talk with about his thoughts of killing people. So he had never really seen a therapist or anybody long-term? Correct. Had he ever been on any kind of psychotropic medication? No, not to my knowledge. The psychiatrist he saw a few months before the killings, up to a few weeks before the killings, recommended medication, but I don't believe he accepted any medication. He was a bit guarded with them. He knew very well that if he said certain things, he would be hospitalized against his will. And he didn't want that to happen. So he was a bit guarded with them and literally told them, if I tell you this, you will, I forget the words, but you'll put me in the hospital. And so, did, and so he didn't tell them. And so he, here he is in graduate school, has a girlfriend, and she's the one, it sounds like, who says, hey, I think you need to go see somebody because you're telling me these things that are scary. Exactly. He had a girlfriend of sorts. He had difficulty with serious personal relationships, really of all kinds, all along. But he was saying things that at least concerned his girlfriend. And she said, gee, I've seen a, a psychiatrist before or a mental health professional before. It helped me. And eventually his parents knew that. And his parents said, or his mother said it had helped her. And so he went to see a, a social worker who quickly referred him to a psychiatrist who relatively quickly brought in a, another psychiatrist who is an expert in violence. And I know I can only imagine how horrible it would have to be to get up on the stand as somebody who's seen a mass shooter essentially before they killed a bunch of people and then have to listen or answer questions about why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that? What was the treating psychiatrist? thoughts about her treatment or her work with him? I think she did very well. She did the best she could with what she had, as you and I know, and sometimes it's very frustrating for us. In today's environment, over the last couple of decades or a few decades, it is very difficult to hospitalize someone against his or her will. That is to take away their rights to walk around. That is largely as it should be. Unfortunately, I think the pendulum has swung a bit too far in that direction. But be that as it may, uh, she tried very hard to get him to explain things to her and to take medication, et cetera. I had him come back and see her, called in a, a consultant for a second opinion, and also to sit in with her for several sessions. We can't read people's minds. There are people all over the country that to this day think that the two psychiatrists did a terrible job because they didn't prevent the killings. I am not one of those people, and indeed, when the civil lawsuit came up involving potential malpractice, et cetera, against those doctors, the lawsuit was dismissed very early because there just was not indication that they did anything wrong. Now, the treating psychiatrist um, has moved from the area. I think she feels very badly, as anyone would. Another one of the psychiatrists, the consulting person, has also moved away and now is a professor at the Dell Medical School of the University of Texas. You know, there are so many thoughts that come up as you're talking, one being just how traumatic I think it is for us treating professionals when we lose anybody, whether that's through suicide or certainly through a situation like that. And I think it is incredibly traumatic 
personally, as well as I can only imagine the kind of Monday morning quarterbacking that you're alluding to that goes on after the fact. And, and number two, I, I completely agree with you that it's so difficult now. And, and I also agree that it, it, for the most part, it should be that way, that it is so difficult to hospitalize somebody involuntarily. And when people are hurting, especially when you have a situation that happened like in Aurora, it just seems like it's human nature to want to find somebody to blame. And people start looking around and, okay, what didn't you do? What didn't you see? Why didn't you handle it this way? And I think it just becomes, it, it, in some respects, I think causes more trauma because there is so much emphasis on trying to find somebody to blame for something that, of course, looking back, maybe we could find things or put stuff together or put pieces of a puzzle, but at the time would be so difficult to see. Sure. The retrospectoscope, if you will, being the opposite from a forward-looking telescope, uh, is always 2020. And the folks involved, including professors and, and friends, everyone second guesses what they did or might have done unfairly, but very naturally. And the, the folks who are angry about this happening, uh, of course, this, this was not an act of God getting hit by lightning while you're playing golf or something. It was very different. Did the treating psychiatrist, uh, did she diagnose him at any point in time? Yes, she did. I'm trying to remember the exact diagnosis. She spoke of schizotypal personality disorder, which, as some of your listeners will understand, is a serious personality disorder, but not a psychotic disorder. Everyone has a personality. Some personalities are more dysfunctional or abnormal than others. She did ask him to try some antipsychotic medication. He did not want to do that. There were other diagnoses in there. I think anxiety of some sort was in there, but she never made a diagnosis of a psychotic disorder such as a schizophrenia. So tell us, I don't think probably many people listening to the show would understand what criteria would need to be met for somebody to have a schizotypal personality disorder. Give us some examples of that. Sure. The accepted mental health diagnostic system lists a number of disorders of the personality that people can have, and they range from relatively mild to relatively serious. The personality disorders in general are things that are more visible to outsiders, to other people, than to the individual himself or herself, so that one might be paranoid, or one might be narcissistic, self-centered. One might have all kinds of characteristics that don't trouble the person as much as they are noticeable by the people around who say, gee, you're always blaming other people for things or something like that. They're not considered a diagnosis by clinicians until they interfere with the person's functioning. So as I said before, everybody's got a personality and everybody's got quirks in their personality. When they begin to interfere with a person's functioning over a long period of time, then a diagnosis of a personality disorder may be made. In the area of schizotypal personality, the person's actions and beliefs and appearances come close to being a break with reality, but usually are not. That is, the person may be paranoid or suspicious of other people or have other symptoms. With schizotypal personality, one can have occasional breaks with reality, 
but they're not characteristic of the disorder. With diagnoses or disorders such as schizophrenia or the more serious ones that we're talking about in this context today, that psychotic or break with reality characteristic is much more typical of the diagnosis and characteristic of the person and not a side issue as it would be with someone with, for example, schizotypal personality. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to The Forensic Psychologist. If you ever miss an episode, don't worry. You can always find us on podcasts on iHeartRadio, Google, Android, Apple, or RSS. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. My fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. Our guest today is Dr. Bill Reed, the forensic psychiatrist who evaluated mass shooter James Holmes. So this is maybe putting you on the spot, Bill, but just bear with me for a minute because I'm trying to get a mental picture. If I met somebody with schizotypal personality, I I guess I would probably have to get to know them pretty well to be able to to see that. What would I see that would clue me in that maybe this person's personality was dysfunctional to the point that it was interfering with his life in some way? I think the first thing, and you said it exactly right, uh, if you met them on the street, you probably wouldn't see anything. But if you got to know them a bit, hung around them, went on a, a picnic with them or something like that, uh, you'd begin to notice, and, and I think maybe the operative word is an oddness, a, a strangeness or an oddness in the way they view things or the way they behave. It might appear in the way they speak, It might appear in the way they act or do things. You would probably see it as an eccentricity rather than a psychiatric problem. And 
does that diagnosis, how did that fit in with your evaluation? Did you agree? Did you disagree? What did you think? It fit in pretty well. I did not use Dr. Fenton's diagnosis to create mine. I certainly considered her diagnosis and her findings and what she said and and saw. But in the end, for me, what she saw was similar to what my opinion was about uh, diagnosis after seeing him for 23, 24 hours, reviewing lots and lots of video, listening to lots of people, and reading a lot of records. This is somebody that you agreed was odd, eccentric, maybe other people would think is weird, maybe in some respects. Of course, my next question is going to be, how does that person who might maybe have trouble making friends or might behave oddly, how does that person become somebody who goes into a movie theater and kills 12 people? That's interesting. Let me say that maybe the first question is, how does that person go to graduate school make a certain number of friends, have a girlfriend, do okay in school, et cetera. And the answer is interesting, uh, if I can go down that path for a minute. Those are great questions. A number of the graduate schools to which he applied, the interviewers said the same thing. They said, he's odd, but all good scientists are odd, so that's not a problem. He's in the club, basically. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He's in the club, and that was true of schools where he wasn't admitted. It was true of the two or three schools to which he was admitted, and it was true uh, of uh, the Colorado Center at at which he, he was admitted as well. His condition deteriorated over the year or so that he was at graduate school, and it may have been deteriorating a little bit before that, but the relevant time is really eight or nine months when he was at, at the medical center. What was noticeably getting worse or changing? After the fact, his friends, a circle of friends, maybe four people, and the person that he dated for a while, who wasn't his girlfriend at the time uh, of the incident, by the way, reported that he had become a little more standoffish. He had been concerned that the girlfriend had broken up with him, although Contrary to some opinions, I don't think that was any kind of triggering factor. He, unknown to anyone, began buying weapons and body armor and lots and lots of ammunition and going out to an unsupervised firing range, but they didn't know that at the time. In the latter part of the academic year, his first academic year as a grad student, he probably did worse than at first. He was never failing. Uh, He did the work. He was sometimes reported by a few people, but certainly not all, as not as good a scientist or, or scientist in training that they had expected. At the end of the year, he had to take an exam to progress to the next year of his graduate program. He flunked that exam. He told people before the exam that he wasn't studying for it. People would ask, hey, are you studying for the exam? And he would say, no, I'm not going to bother. I'll either pass or I'll fail. And indeed, he, he failed. That was a bit of a blow, but he may well have already decided that it didn't matter whether he passed or failed, that he had already decided on his mission, which no one knew about, and simply didn't care. They offered him a chance to retake it, by the way, 
and he decided not to and dropped out of school. So there is, there does appear to be this kind of deterioration functioning, which of course, as you pointed out, and I'm glad that you reinforced that, this is after the fact that we can look back and see that. What did he tell you in the evaluation or how did he explain this series of events? That's a good question because it, it, things took place over so many hours of videotaped interview. In general, he answered questions straightforwardly. I asked him questions several times at, at different times, and the answers were fairly consistent. But in general, he spoke of things going pretty well in school. He mentioned that he didn't pass the, the, the exam, uh, but he did not um, say that he was flunking out, that he was having terrible problems in school, trouble concentrating, none of that. Although I suspect that his obsession with his mission was very much interfering with his scholarly work and his lab work. He talked about three things that were leading him on this mission to kill people. Uh, would you like me to go into those now, or do you have a different question? No, absolutely. Okay. Um, because we all try to make sense of things after the fact, and rarely does anybody have the opportunity to sit down with somebody who actually did something like this and say, Tell me your version. Tell me how you've made sense of this. And indeed, when one does that, the, and I say this in court fairly often, making sense of it when a person is severely mentally ill is very often a fool's errand. It may make sense to their crazy mind at the time, even though I don't think Holmes's mind was extremely crazy at the time, uh, but to have it make sense to you and I and the rest of the, of the listeners, we have to set that concept aside because there is often not much logical sense to it. That doesn't mean that it's crazy in the sense of he shouldn't be convicted necessarily. The jury has to decide one way or the other about that. But here's the way he says he thought of it, and it is pretty consistent with for example, a written notebook that he kept for several weeks uh, before the, the shootings. First, he believed he was getting more and more depressed. There's not much evidence for that, by the way, but he believed he was getting more and more depressed and that he might kill himself unless he killed other people. Somehow, killing other people might, and he wasn't sure, but might alleviate his depression. So in a sense, and I, I phrase this to him in the same way, uh, asking him about it, in a sense, he was willing to trade other people's lives for the mere possibility that he might feel better afterward. That's one part of what he describes as his motivation. He said, and he gave it a mathematical amount, a percentage amount, he said that was about 45% of his motivation. Another 45% was the idea that he got a point, that is a score point, a point of score for everybody that he killed. Those points didn't give him particular powers or they didn't have any particular value. He was very clear about that. They were merely marks on a chalkboard. The more you have, the better it is but there's no real goal 
other than simply having more points. In my view, although that was a very odd idea and an overvalued idea, that is, his thoughts about that were greatly exaggerated over what some gamer might think as the gamer was playing a computer game. I did not believe that they were psychotic. That is, they were out of touch with reality to the extent of calling them what a mental health professional would call psychotic. Other people, and we can talk about this, disagreed. He thought that idea of the points was about 45% as well. He thought about 10%, that is the remaining 10%, had to do with his hatred of people. It's important to pause a little bit here. In Colorado and some other states, if your motivation is angry or revenge or hatred or something like that, then your insanity defense goes out the window. The, the, the court says or the law says that no matter how crazy you are, if you do it because you're angry, then you can't proceed with the insanity defense. I don't know whether he says it this way, their home says it this way because he understood that. He's quite smart and by this time he's been dealing with his lawyers for a long time or not. He clarified that quickly to say that his hatred of other people was not a violent hatred, but a hatred like you hate broccoli. Those were his words. We talked about that a bit. We talked about that more than once. So there you have his version of the motivation. So these are clearly odd beliefs, but if I'm hearing you correctly, Bill, you did not think those rose to the level of delusions. I was not sure whether they were delusions or not, or whether some of them were delusions or not. For example, the delusion that his depression would be, or the, the idea that his depression would be cleared, uh, or that other people could give you points. And he went into great detail about the point system, and he had written it down uh, in his notebook. As I say, other evaluators, in fact, essentially all the other evaluators, believed that they did reach the level of delusions. It's important to point out uh, to listeners something that you and I know, but is not commonly understood, you can be pretty darn crazy, and I use the term not cavalierly, you can be pretty darn crazy and still meet legal criteria for being guilty of a crime. The idea of being not guilty by reason of insanity in all states, the laws vary slightly, but in all states, the idea is that you're mental disorder, your mental dysfunction prevents you from being able to form the intent, to intend to commit a crime. And we know there are lots of ways that people can die. People can die in accidents, they can die in wars, and they can die from being shot uh, in a criminal way. Um, most people, even with severe mental illness, have, in my view, and in the view of most courts, have the ability to form intent most of the time. If that weren't the case, then the, I don't know, six million people in America with schizophrenia could never be convicted of a crime. And that's simply not the case. And it would be an insult to those six million people to say that they were not to be held responsible for their actions. It would be an insult to them. So whether there was psychosis present or not, or delusion present or not, the real question was, 
Did he know what he was doing? Did he know that it was wrong, that society would find it wrong? And the answer to both those questions, in my opinion, and Dr. Messner's opinion as well, and also the prosecution psychiatrist, was that whatever else he had, he was able and competent or, or able to form intent to commit the crime. One thing I'm not hearing in his explanations is a lack of awareness that other people would say this is wrong or that society would say this is wrong. I mean, as a matter of fact, what you're telling me, it sounds like that he acknowledged that these motives or reasons were pretty self-serving in an attempt to alleviate his depression and earn these points, but there's nothing that you're telling me that indicates he didn't realize that other people wouldn't agree with this or other people wouldn't, or he didn't recognize that he didn't recognize that these were not good things to do. Exactly. And the jury thought just as you were thinking, and I think that's a very logical way. That's a very logical way to, to think about it. It is clear. And he simply told me on camera uh, more than once that he understood that the people would not have wanted to die. He understood that shooting them was a crime. It was not a situation of the devil made me do it. It it just simply wasn't. Now, the defense was able to keep certain parts of the video. Uh, Most of the video was heard in court in its entirety. About 15 or 20 minutes was redacted uh, on motion from the defense because they were more than than usually uh, self-incriminating. And so the part some of those little pieces were not heard by the jury, but the idea was not lost on them. And I believe that was fair. What was his end game? So many mass shooters end up committing suicide or provoking a situation where they get killed during the actual attack. And yet it doesn't sound like he is suicidal in this case. As a matter of fact, as you just said, he's killing people because he doesn't want to be suicidal essentially, as part of his motive. Sure. The end game was very unclear for him. It was not very well thought out. He took with him a first aid kit, a couple of things in the car to foil the police if they should chase him. For example, those little uh, uh, things that look like jacks that you toss on the road that flatten your tires. He did not take his passport with him. He didn't have any plan to go to Mexico or anything like that. He had no plan, either logical or illogical. I don't believe he wanted to die, and I think he, I'm almost certain he said that, but I don't believe he believed he wanted to die, whether he said it or not. It's that he didn't care. The mission was important, and wherever he was going to end up after the shootings, he had his 12 points. He didn't at least in the conversation about before the shootings, he knew that he might be killed, but he protected himself very much from being killed, both in the planning of the setting and in his control of the setting with things like uh, tear gas and creating avenues in which people would go and not be able to get to him uh, and he would be able to shoot them more easily. He wore this, uh, this body armor, uh, Kevlar stuff, Once confronted by the police, when, by the way, he had just taken off his body armor and taken off some of it, he simply put his hands up and allowed them to take him into custody. He was extremely passive. 
He did absolutely nothing to impair the police in their arrest of them, of him, uh, or to make him make them handle him roughly or anything like that. Did he ever express any kind of remorse or any sorrow? I know you said he was aware that other people would not want to die and he was taking their lives and he gave some, in his mind, logical explanations for this. What about feeling wise? There are two things that stand out. Neither stands out very convincingly, uh, if you will. One was he did not plan to kill children. I'm, I'm quite convinced of that. There was a child in the theater, a young, a, a, a small child, who was killed. Uh, and there was a pregnant lady who was killed. But that's the reason he set the event for a midnight showing, um, things like that. As he was being brought into the uh, station, finally, they walked him past an area that had something to do with children. There was a sign on the wall or something that had something to do with kids. And at that point, he asked the officers, I didn't kill any children, did I? Or, or were any children wounded or something like that? <clears throat> when I talked with him, as I say, after the, the event, I asked him about remorse, of course, or about feelings in, in, in various ways. He said that he had remorse, and I think he used the word remorse. It didn't sound like he used it with great feeling. He didn't tear up or anything like that. But he said, yes, I have remorse now. It wasn't convincing in a legal way, if you will, or a way to, for example, avoid the death penalty. We're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have feedback about a show or would like to suggest a topic, I'd love for you to email me at drjoanijohnston.com. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. Did you have any sense of how the jurors responded to this case in terms of what was most impactful to them, what was persuasive to them, what they thought of James Holmes? Yes, and you're the first person who's asked me that. Thank you. The state went through an enormous jury selection process, thousands and thousands of potential jurors, the, the most that had been reviewed and culled in Colorado history. They finally narrowed it down to 12 jurors and, and 12 alternates. They tried very hard to find people who did not have a, precon a preconceived notion of whether or not he was mentally ill. It was clear that 
that the insanity defense was going to be the issue in the trial. That's almost impossible because the entire population of Colorado and much of the rest of the country was furious at him. The jurors, first of all, had to sit there for months and listen. You've been in court, just how boring it can be unless you're the one doing the talking. They sat there for months. They were sequestered during that entire time. They couldn't go home. At least I believe that's the case. <coughs> I'm sorry not to be able to, to remember every detail. Three of the jurors in the course of the trial were dismissed because of little leaks in talking about the case or being shown a newspaper clipping or something like that. But it's clear that this was very traumatic for the jurors. I think it's unlikely that any of the jurors was very swayed by the defense's proposition that he was severely mentally ill and could not contemplate intent to commit a crime. Now, there was a very good psychiatrist retained by the defense that came to that opinion. I don't believe she was convincing. That's nothing personal against her. She's a super psychiatrist. In the end, in Colorado, in this case, there are several parts to the trial process and the punishment process. At the very end, the fourth or fifth step of all this, there was one juror who believed that he shouldn't be put to death. And the jury simply said, we're not going to change that person's mind. And so we're coming back and saying that uh, the recommendation is not to have uh, the death penalty. He qualified for the death penalty, clearly, and the jury said he qualified for it. But because of that one person, maybe another who was never heard because the first one took care of the issue, the jury did not, did not assess the death penalty. One thing as a mom of four kids, I always just can't find myself at times not only putting myself in the shoes or trying to put myself in the shoes of the victims, which is just horrific, or the parents of the victims, but also putting myself in the shoes of the parents of the perpetrator. It just would be horrible to think that my child had murdered 12 other innocent people. Did you talk to his mom or dad at all? Yes, I did. And your point's extremely well taken. The victims and the victims' families are certainly not the only victims. There were other people in the theater. There are other people who are victims in various ways all around the country. But the parents of perpetrators or the significant others of perpetrators are very much victims. And I talked with uh, mother and dad uh, and sister before the trial. Uh, I've been in touch with them after the trial, but only briefly. I'm aware of the tribulations that they've had. The mother, Mrs. Holmes, wrote, I think, a poignant book about thoughts, not about the events, but about thoughts in general. And all of those proceeds go to charity. It's, it's just a terrible situation for them. As we mentioned before, internet trolls who second guess and just want to jump on people, some of those don't like the parents at all. The parents, as I said in the very beginning of the, of the book, uh, the parents did nothing wrong. They were not dysfunctional. They were not illogical. They were not 
unloving. They were quite loving. The parents did nothing wrong. And that, I think, is what is so hard to you know, get our heads around. I think one of the reasons sometimes this blame game gets played is because we just all want to believe. We can just identify the three things that lead up to this or the five warning signs that are inevitable. And, and yet it just seems like almost in every single case, there's this perfect storm that if you took away maybe any one of these things, it wouldn't, the same thing wouldn't have happened. And that may be the case. We know that just before he went into the theater, Holmes tried to call the emergency helpline at the medical center. For some reason, it wasn't connected. We know that the call went through. The person who would have answered that phone heard some silence or something like that. We know the call took place. So one wonders what would have happened if the phone had been answered. He says he doesn't know, and I agree. He doesn't know. Your point that everybody wants to know the three things or the five things that, that we can do to prevent these things, uh, boy, of course that's the $64 question. And boy, there is no such five things. Law enforcement doesn't have them. Mental health and psychiatry and psychology don't have them. Social science doesn't have them. Some of the things I often talk about are, first of all, Mass killers and mass shooters are different. They're, they are not all of the same kind. By the way, the, the FBI and law enforcement speak of mass killing as anything over two or three in one event, so that the ones that have uh, six, eight, 10, 12 or more people shot, or in this case, 70 people shot, uh, are, are a different category. <clears throat> There are people who are severely mentally ill. There are people who are really angry and have these personality disorders, but they're not all alike. There is not something that mental health can do to stop this. You and I both want mental health to get lots more funding and much better understanding among the public. What will happen if that happens is that lots and lots of people will get better help. Will it stop mass Killings? Probably not, because mass killings are, as you just pointed out, part of this very unusual perfect storm that comes together in spite of whatever else is going on in society. I think it has very little to do with society or availability of mental health services when things get to the level uh, of <coughs> when things get to the level of this kind of, uh, of tragic event. I also often frequently say, and this is spoken as a shrink, we are not the folks to prevent or watch out for serious crime, violence, etc. We can do our part when we have an opportunity with a patient or a client or a family, but the best protection, if you will, or the best buffer is good law enforcement. When there are signs, when there are threats that have been made, when smaller crimes begin to escalate, things like that, these things are much more in the bailiwick of law enforcement. And sometimes the behavioral units within law enforcement, I just spoke the other day with an FBI agent and a behavioral unit of the FBI down in Florida, 
or emailed him rather, those are much better handled than by the shrinks. We make very poor, what, what's the word? Predictors, tell me the word. Yeah, pre- I think prediction is a very good word. Yeah. It's very difficult for us. We make very poor predictors unless we're experienced in something other than simple psychology and psychiatry. We are very poor profilers. We are the last people in the world to be profilers for criminal or violent behavior. The best people to do that, and I've known some of the best people with the FBI, are law enforcement people who are very smart, have lots of experience, and some psychological background, behavioral background. Let me ask you this hypothetical question. Again, probably putting you on the spot, Bill, now that I have you here. Um, Let's say that I'm not a psychologist for a minute, and let's say that I have a close friend who begins talking about hurting other people. And this person isn't making a direct threat per se, but is talking about being angry and talking about hurting other people and fantasies about shooting other people. And I'm encouraging this person to get some professional psychological help. This person is resistant or refusing to. What should that person do? It's such a a dilemma. Of course, it's a dilemma. And it's especially a dilemma for parents and spouses and brothers and sisters. We get the same dilemma, by the way, with people who are killing themselves with substance abuse or suicidal or going into crime because of substance abuse. My view, and it's a hard pill to swallow, is that once it gets to the point of that kind of concern, you call the cops. You put the police on notice, and it may or may not be fruitful, but you put the police on notice so that they can do within their system the things that have helped in the past in similar situations. They've dealt with these situations far more than any of us, parents or brothers or sisters or or psychologists and psychiatrists. Put it into their hands as a notice and try to have the faith that they're not going to run out and go overboard with it. But I think it's safer for all concerned, including the individual, to have law enforcement (coughs) be aware of the situation. That's a very interesting perspective. I know there are other cases where law enforcement is trying to do a better job of tracking those kinds of reports, not only in terms of mental health or threats or those kind of things, but even domestic violence, because as you and I both know, this is a little bit off topic, but the number one situation in which law enforcement are killed is in domestic violence situations. And one of the challenges is sometimes they go into situations not realizing there's a long history of this person being violent. So to that extent, I could certainly understand what you're talking about, that letting law enforcement know that this person is of concern. Yes. uh, Is documenting and potentially could be, could make action a little bit easier to take in the future if it's necessary and could, could potentially protect that individual from making a horrible mistake. That's, that's right. That's right. An awful lot of people have the experience of calling their police department and whoever answers the phone or somebody they eventually talk with says, there's nothing we can do until dot, dot, dot. But you have done what you can. And if you continue to be concerned, you call and ask to speak with somebody else. The idea is that it goes on the record Someone heard it, you provided the documentation or your notes or your description of what's happened, 
you may or may not want to tell the individual this. You may think that if you tell the individual, you'd be killed or you'd be in danger. I don't like the idea of keeping secrets in families or in clinical settings, but one has to stay safe. And so I'm not going to say never tell the individual, but the point is go on record that someone knows who has both the ability and the authority to investigate it and to do something about it as necessary. Psychiatrists and psychologists don't have the authority to do anything about it and don't have the ability to properly investigate it. The only authority we have is to go to the police or law enforcement in some way and initiate involuntary hospitalization procedures. That's, that's not much that we can do, and we are not the people to investigate the violence part. We're the people to investigate the mental illness part. And those two are often separate. And I think that's a great thing to end on because unfortunately, and I think you would agree with me here, so often the media, whenever there's any kind of violence, that just the immediate assumption is this had to do with mental illness. And I think we both know, and I think we want everybody else to know that, yes, there can be a link between mental illness and violence, but it certainly is not the way it is portrayed. You're and absolutely it's not, right. And it's often not a direct link, and it's often not a link at all. You're absolutely right. The only thing consistently connected between mental illness and violence is substance abuse. If you take substance abuse out of the equation, you get what many studies, including the MacArthur study, have shown that there is no correlation there. If you look retrospectively at odd kinds of crimes, shooting 70 people, you're likely to find some mental illness. If you look more forward, instead of going back and saying, here's a heroin abuser who drank milk as a child, if you look at it going forward with all milk drinkers or all mentally ill people, you find that they're a pretty docile group and almost never a criminal group unless substance abuse has been involved. I want to thank you so much for coming on today and being such an informative and interesting guest. Thank you, Joni. I appreciate it. And I hope your podcast this time is as successful as some of the other ones have been. I look forward to seeing how this one turns out. Thank you. I'll certainly keep you, keep you informed. You are listening to The Forensic Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Joni Johnston, and we'll see you next time. 